Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are reviewing both the ALCS and NLCS so far, and the chances for each team to make the World Series. Plus, the biggest games from NFL Week 6 and picking the games ahead of Week 7. And, which teams have the best shot of making the college football playoff. It's episode 44 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. What's happening, everybody? Here on Thursday, October 21st, 2021, the 44th edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. It's definitely really feeling like fall with the temperatures dropping, getting darker a little sooner. It's really feeling like the fall. And I got to tell you, this week has been incredible for me. I got to go to my first postseason baseball game, got to see game four between the Red Sox and the Astros. This past Tuesday night, and that's a great segue to get into our first topic, which is talking about the league championship series for both the American League and the National League, because there are some results that I really weren't expecting at all. And the aforementioned Red Sox game and the Red Sox series between the Houston Astros, I was not expecting that at all to see the Red Sox come out swinging like that, to see three grand slams in two games. That was unbelievable for me to watch. But in watching this series from Game 1 up until yesterday's Game 5, the biggest takeaways I'm seeing is that the Red Sox have been able to attack the starting pitching for the Houston Astros. Their starting pitchers, obviously, in the, on the Astros' side, are totally dead in the water without Lance McCullers Jr. You know, But then here comes Framber Valdez last night going eight innings. You know, perfect through, I believe it was four innings. And really the only blip on that whole pitching staff was Rafael Devers' home run. But the game was already put to bed by that time. So that's that's one big takeaway is that the starting pitching for the Astros needs to go the distance. You know, if they're probably not going to get another start like Framber Valdez did. I don't think they're going to go eight innings like he did. But to go a manageable four or five, and that's that's exactly what Boston has been doing. Their starters, Rodriguez, Evaldi, Sale, they've been going, you know, five innings, or even if they've gone a little shorter, the bullpen has been able to bail them out, which is another takeaway I take, is that the bullpen, both bullpens have been shut lot shut down, basically. You know, Red Sox more so in the first couple of games, in the first four games. As compared to Houston, you know, once you get past the starting pitching for Houston, then the bullpen shuts them down. They have a bunch of great arms that are able to shut the Red Sox down. And when you look at them offensively, how good is the Houston bullpen? 22 of the 28 runs scored by Boston in this series has been in the first three innings. Okay, keep that in mind. 22 out of the 28 runs have been within the first three innings. 
And that's normally how far their starters are going. So the Red Sox cannot hit off this bullpen. We've seen it even last night. They can't hit off this bullpen. So as long, you know, similar to in game four, the game that I went to, and then yesterday's game five, if the Houston Astros can hold this Red Sox offense to a minimal amount of runs and keep it within distance, then it's a good lineup where even if they have gone cold and don't put up the amount of runs that they normally have in the regular season, you can at least give them a chance. You can give them a chance. Because in Game 4 and Game 5, the lineup for the Astros looked like themselves. I mean, they had the most runs scored in the regular season. But it from Game 1, Game 2, Game 3, they were held to 5 runs or less. And you know, even with the Game 4, where they blew it open in the ninth, and then yesterday, where they blew it open, that's the lineup we're more accustomed to see with Houston. So, you know, it's a it's a postseason of runs, essentially. You got the Red Sox offense who was hot. The Astros were cold. Now the tables have turned. And it's going to be all about managing, you know, how do, how do you limit that offense when you look at the Red Sox? Because they're, they're now on the brink, down 3-2. They're going to get Nathan Evaldi going. They've got their ace. So he needs to shut that lineup down. I kind of question Alex Cora really putting Evaldi in in the ninth. You know, you probably want Evaldi on as much rest as you can because he's going to start game six. If he didn't go in, when he went in game four, he's now on three days rest because he didn't get into game five. Pitchers on three days rest, you know, once in a while have good games, but I don't know if I can see that from Nate Evaldi. So it's really going to come down to the Red Sox bullpen. How are they going to be able to shut down this Houston lineup? Because we saw it last night that they did no such thing. You know, Hansel Robles couldn't do it. Ryan Brazier couldn't do it. All these guys can't do it. They can only do it for X amount of time. And meanwhile, for the Red Sox, that offense has just got to wake up. You know, they were totally cold. I didn't think that their offense would totally go away like it did. I mean, come on, 12 runs against Houston? They've been able to put up the offensive numbers both at Fenway and at Minute Maid. So a sustainable offense is really all you're looking for, you know? The fact that they've got shut down after scoring like 9 and 12, then they score 2 and 1, like that that offense has to get better. And it could be Rafael Devers' forearm injury. It could be J.D. Martinez's ankle. But Alex Cora's trying to push the right buttons. I don't know if he's going to be able to do it. Because it is Houston. Houston just as electric an atmosphere as Fenway Park. Which, by the way, that atmosphere at Fenway was incredible. Definitely giving me 03-04 vibes. But I think this goes to a seventh game. I think the Red Sox somehow, someway are going to pull this out. And that's really where anything can happen. I did predict the Red Sox to uh, take this series. I'm still unsure about this, but I do think it goes seven games. I think these two teams are totally matched, but it almost felt like the Red Sox lost the series in the ninth inning of game four. But we'll have to see. That's that's what's great about the postseason is that anything can happen. You know, it can turn on a dime just like that. But there might be a series, the other series, the NLCS, that series might be over by the time this episode airs. Because last night... The Braves put on an offensive clinic against a Dodgers staff, which some were calling unhittable. I mean, 9-2 to 
in Game 4 last night to take a uh, 3-1 series lead. What a performance the Braves have been putting on in this postseason. I mean, you take away Game... I think it was Game 4, or sorry, Game 3 by the Dodgers, and that pitching staff has shut them down. I mean, it has gone a lot of back and forth, really down to the wire, where Atlanta walked off twice, then you had Cody Bellinger tying the game, Mookie Betts getting the game. But I think, again, similar to the ALCS, the back half of the bullpen needs to shut the door down. So we're seeing that with Will Smith for the Braves. He has been able to shut this lineup down. And for the Dodgers, Kenley Jansen, Joe Kelly, Brunson Graterall, Blake Trinan, they all got to contain this kind of offense because they've got weapons aplenty. Freddie Freeman, you saw Rosario, two home runs last night. Duvall, you have Dansby Swanson. Keep in mind, this is all without Ronald Acuna Jr., their best hitter. Their best hitter isn't in this series, and look what that offense is doing against what I think might be the best pitching staff remaining in this postseason. I do question David Dave Roberts putting Urias into Game 3 last night or the other night I kind of question it you know because you again you want to have these guys at full at full strength you know Urias last night went five innings and gave up five earned runs or was charged with five earned runs three strikeouts two walks and I don't know if that was in part two he did he was still kind of rusty in terms of you know coming into the game in the bullpen coming out of the bullpen because he was going to start, you know, similar to what Alex Cora did with Nathan Ivaldi. You know he's going to start the next game that you play, or one of the next few games. But you still want to throw him out there hoping for the best. I, I'm i not a big fan of putting starting pitchers in anywhere in the ninth inning or before. If it was like extra innings, kind of similar to in the Red Sox-Rays game when it went to extra innings in game three. When it went to extras... Then you can throw your starters in. You hope Nick Pavetta or any kind of starter goes a long time. But anything other than that, I'm not really a big, big supporter of, a big fan of. So, you know, I'm not going to say the loss is on Dave Roberts because this use, uh, this L.A. team is dealing with a lot of injuries and it just got worse. Their top hitter, Max Muncy, was out. And now it's looking like Turner is not going to be, is going to be out. He's going to be out for the remainder of of the series and that's a big loss that is a huge loss for a lineup that was already struggling it would they they were already struggling because this Braves team you got to remember the Braves only gave up six runs during their four game series with Milwaukee so if they're shutting this Dodger lineup down imagine what they're able to do with with this with anybody really you know I'm a I'm supporting the Braves on this one. I think they're up 3-1. They took a game at Dodger Stadium. That was absolutely huge. Absolutely huge. And now the fact that Justin Turner and Max Muncy are out of this lineup, that's going to put a lot more pressure on guys like Bellinger, who struggled. Guys like Mookie Betts, who haven't had the same season as he has before. Guys like Trey Turner. All these guys have got a ton of pressure. I know they've got Walker Bueller. They've got Max Muncy. Or uh, Max Scherzer, excuse me. They got Bueller. They got Muncie. Urias might go again. I just don't see it being down 3-1. I understand Atlanta was up 3-1 last year against this Dodgers team, but this team's a little different. You know, the lineup isn't what it used to be. 
and the pitching staff in terms of the bullpen isn't quite the same. So that's why I'm more optimistic on Atlanta than I am on LA. And I think I can expect the Braves to win the pennant for the first time since 1999 that I read. So I think it's going to be really exciting to see what happens tonight in Game 5 at Dodger Stadium. Will the Dodgers keep their season alive or will the Braves punch their ticket to the World Series? Tough to tough to say until you see it play out on the diamond, but postseason baseball doesn't get any better than this. Shifting gears now to the NFL, we're getting very close to the halfway mark of this 17-game season. We're coming off of Week 6, getting ready to go into Week 7. We've got our Pick'em segment coming up. But first, I want to talk about a few games that really opened my eyes uh, last week during Week 6. And I want to start with Minnesota and Carolina. I wanted to talk more about the Panthers on this one because last week when Chandler Hutchison and Pat Mahoney were on the show, we talked about... Guys like Lamar Jackson, guys like Patrick Mahomes and Derrick Henry, who are guys where you, you take them out of the lineup and it's a whole different ball game. And it's a whole different team. It's the same thing with the Panthers and Christian McCaffrey. This team is completely lost without their star running back. And arguably, probably the best running back in the game in terms of versatility with uh, running the ball and catching the ball. He's so dynamic, but he just can't stay healthy. And because of that, you know, the Panthers have gone from 3-0 and to 3-3. and And that's putting a lot more weight on Sam Darnold, which we're finding out he can't have that much weight on him. I mean, looking at the numbers from this game, 17-41, of 41, 207 yards, one touchdown, and an interception. Okay, and on the other side, Kirk Cousins was 33 of 48, 373 for three touchdowns, no picks. So this is really a Carolina team where, you know, I had high hopes for them. I thought defensively they were going to be able to, to carry them out through even without McCaffrey. But we're finding out their top uh, pick at quarterback, Horn, is a lot more important than people think. And this defense can't contain some of these offense, even an offense like Minnesota, who got 571 yards, 571 yards. They gave up nearly 200 rush yards in this game. And Dalvin Cook had 140 of them. So I don't know if I'm high on Carolina as I was in the past. I think this upcoming week is going to be real crucial, at least for me, to evaluate them because... This is the first game that Stephon Gilmore is eligible. And I think maybe that's what Carolina is missing. They're missing like a shutdown corner or whatever, a number one cornerback. And Stephon Gilmore, regardless, is going is a number one. Is a number one cornerback. And we're finding out that that defense has been able to bail them out. The defense in Christian McCaffrey has bailed out Sam Darnold. Because is he the same quarterback that he was with the Jets? No, he's a little bit better, but he's just got to clean up the mistakes. And the entire team does too. Three turnovers on the game, losing two fumbles. I mean, come on, Carolina. 
Everyone had high hopes for you, and you lose a game to the Vikings in overtime. This is going to be real crucial for the Panthers this week. I don't know if they're going to get McCaffrey back, but they have to salvage their season. Okay, you go from 3-0, and now you've dropped three straight. If you're losing a game to the Vikings, that's cause for concern right there. And I know I, I was high on the Vikings early on, and I'd still like this offense. But the fact is Carolina is in a downward spiral. And they have to fix it. it. They have to fix it. And I think it starts with Sam Darnold cleaning up the mistakes that he made. That That's number one right there. And then number two, defensively, they just got to get better. On the D-line, they got to stop the run game. If you're giving up 200 rush yards, that's, that's a cause for concern right there. I still have faith in Chubba Hubbard if he's still playing. But this is all on Sam Darnold in my mind. That's how I see this one going. The second game I wanted to talk about was Pittsburgh and Seattle. Another game that goes to overtime. And I got to be honest, these are two teams, you know, even with the result, I still don't really have a lot of high hopes for them. I think Seattle is up a creek without a paddle, without Russell Wilson. Their defense can't stop anybody, not even a Steelers offense. And Geno Smith just isn't the guy. He's not the guy, okay? having a crucial fumble, throwing interceptions. You know, this this is still a good defensive team in Pittsburgh. You know, you still have TJ Watt at the outside linebacker position, okay? If you have TJ Watt, you're going to be in in the game the whole time. But Seattle just I don't think they go anywhere. I don't think they go anywhere with Geno Smith. I mean, he was 23 of 32 for 209 yards and a touchdown. And if you wanted to take the load off of him, you don't really have a running back that you can go to. You can't go to Alex Collins. You can't go to Chris Carson. You can't go to these guys. So there's no one really to bail you out. You know, Alex Collins was the leading rusher, and he had 20 carries for just over 100 yards. But meanwhile, on the other side, you know, I don't think it's more so about Pittsburgh getting back to where they were offensively. It's just the fact that Seattle couldn't stop them, okay? Big Ben had 229 yards passing. Had a QBR of 38.2 and a passer rating of 94.7, okay? Najee Harris didn't get 100 yards. He got 81. And that offense, you know, even without Juju Smith-Schuster, they were okay, okay? Deontay Johnson was good. Chase Claypool was good. You know, I I think this is a Pittsburgh team. They're still not going to make the playoffs, I think, you know? I was high on them, but I think their defense is going to win a couple of games. I think they'll probably be like the third best team because let's just be honest that AFC North is tough it is a tough division and the fact that Pittsburgh at three and three is sort of near the bottom that's saying a lot that's saying a lot but I just think you know Big Ben can't carry the load he cannot carry the load and you know this is just they ran into a Seattle team that can't stop anybody okay this isn't the Legion of Boom defense so I think they got lucky on that one getting it to overtime, just capitalizing on the mistakes. The defense won them that game. And I said before the season even began that TJ Watt and this whole Pittsburgh defense was going to win them games. This is one of them right there, beating Seattle at home in overtime. Props to Steelers for keeping their season alive. But then the last game before we get into the pick'em segment was the Monday night game. Tennessee and Buffalo, okay? Everyone's talking about Buffalo going for it on fourth down rather than 
going for the tie. They wanted to go for the win. And honestly, I don't blame them. I don't blame them. When you have a team like Tennessee, you know they have a high-power offense. You know they've got Derrick Henry. You know he ran for 143 yards and three touchdowns. Why not? Why not take the chance, you know? It'd probably it'd probably be a different story if they were fighting for a playoff spot, but I think the fact is Buffalo is in a completely perfect situation. They're right now one of the top teams in the AFC. They're definitely going to win the AFC East over New England, over Miami, over New York. Definitely without a question. So they can afford to drop a game like this against a high-powered team like Tennessee. But speaking of Tennessee, I think they're back on track. I think they are what we all thought they could be with Derrick Henry pounding that ball and then the two-headed monster at receiver, A.J. Brown, Julio Jones. Granted, Julio, not the same guy that he was in Atlanta, but he can still be effective. He can still be an effective receiving option. Three receptions, 59 yards. Of course, one of them was the 48-yard reception, but just having that kind of offense and that kind of versatility. I mean, Derrick Henry, outside of Ryan Tannehill, was the only guy to carry the ball, okay? He carried it 20 times, which means Ryan Tannehill had to throw that ball a ton. 18 of 29, 216. He did have an interception, but when you have Derrick Henry and you have that kind of game plan, if he's running the way he is, why not just give him the ball, give him the ball, give him the ball? So Derrick Henry won that game. And meanwhile, for Buffalo, Josh Allen was doing Josh Allen things. 353, three touchdowns, one pick, 35 of 47. But again, they have to get a run game in there, which I have confidence that they will. They will have a run game at least to a degree. You know, 335 on the pass, 335 passing yards, 82 rushing yards. Not a good balance, but this is a Buffalo team that can correct it. I really think they do. I think... They're one of the top teams in the AFC. This is water under the bridge. They're 4-2 and two right now. They're going to run away with the division, so I see nothing wrong. But what a game it was between these two. With Josh Allen slinging the ball, Derrick Henry running the ball, it was an incredible game to watch. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in Week 7, which is a great transition into our Pick'em segment. We have another special guest joining us making some picks and he's a good friend of the show, the very first guest we had on this podcast. And I got to tell you, it was a fun conversation. So without any further ado, I present to you the NFL Week 7 edition of our segment known as Pick'em. So now we've got our NFL Pick'em segment, our third installment, and we've got a special guest joining us once again, the first ever guest on this podcast let me speak returning to the show is ben may ben thanks again for joining us our first ever guest glad to have you back on the show it is so good to be glad uh it's so good to be back i'm really excited apparently i needed some training because i just stuttered over my words in the first intro but we're great we're good really excited (laughs) to do this yeah, definitely fixed it now i understand a lot of things have changed since the last time i understand you have a new home is that correct yeah, I live in the Catskills now, and I am surrounded by Western New Yorkers who are making fun of me because the Bills are better than the Patriots right now, and it's it's a very humbling experience, uh, to say the least. Uh, just remember, you've got the Red Sox over everyone else right now. Just keep that in mind. I'm wearing my Red Sox hat right now. I keep on telling everybody that it's the greatest wild card run that anyone's ever had, and 
you know what? Uh, Red Sox in six. The Astros are cheaters. <laughs> I love the argument too. People say you cheated too, not as much as you guys, but we already <laughs> talked about baseball. Let's get into the NFL and get into some picks. Now, right now you're reaching for an 813 win percentage set by Johnny Mansaridis on our first segment. Last week we had Chandler Hutchison, Pat Mahoney. They both went 10 and four. You get a few fewer games than in the past, but I think we're going on win percentages. So are you ready to make some picks? I'm absolutely ready. All right. So we'll start with the Thursday night game. And I kind of, it kind of feels a little unfair doing this like on a Tuesday for a Thursday night game, because we don't know about Baker Mayfield with the Cleveland Browns, them hosting the Denver Broncos. We don't know if Mayfield's going to be active or not. Both teams, you know, regardless of injuries are looking for a big win to get back their momentum. They're both three and three. How do you see the Thursday night game playing out? Looking at the amount of inj injuries the Browns have, it's going to be a tough task for them to take on the Broncos. What I'm looking at more is the coaching situation. And I think that I trust Kevin Stefanski to create schemes to beat the Broncos and I do Vic Fangio. And I also believe that Baker Mayfield is just the type of person to fight to play no matter the circumstance. We saw him, you know, in a sling during press conferences. We've been seeing that for a while now, but I don't think that's any indicator of anything. I think he will play no matter the circumstance. And again, I just think in regards to coaching, I trust Kevin Savansky to do more with the team and what, and what he has. And maybe this matters, maybe it doesn't, but home games, you might want to take the home team. So I, I think the Browns can get it done. Yeah, I think the, the only hindrance that they have is the injuries with Mayfield's shoulder and Kareem Hunt just going on IR, Jarvis Landry and his injury. Um, I think defensively, this Browns team, again, you can trust that more than Denver because everyone's like, Denver's 3-0, and but those teams didn't have a single win in those 3-0 and teams. So now they're coming back down to earth. And I like the Browns. I like the Browns here as well. But now we move on to the Sunday games. Washington at Green Bay. Packers have been rolling since that dud in week one. They've won five straight. Aaron Rodgers says he owns the Bears. Can he do the same thing with the WFTs and all their controversy? Ben, Washington versus Green Bay. What do you think? I would solidly take Green Bay in this moment. Washington's currently uh, in a situation where uh, Taylor Haneke is not their quarterback or maybe their quarterback. We're not really sure. There's a lot of instability that's happening with WFT. And the Packers, this is going to be one of their last easier games for a while. They're going to hit a tough stretch going forward. So I would take Aaron Rodgers over anybody else. Um, Aaron Rodgers is doing great stuff. He's created a great resume for wherever he's going to go next year. And I, I trust uh, a franchise like Green Bay to take care of business on the road. Yeah, I think for Washington, I kind of thought they'd have like a coming out game last week against Kansas City, but defensively, they're not what they were a year ago. And obviously, as you said, offensive problems, not saying Taylor Heineke's bad, but just he's not the quarterback, maybe if you're looking for like a deep postseason run, especially in an NFC East that, you know, is much better than it was last year with the Cowboys being successful, Eagles offense a little bit better. So I think I'm on on you there, Green Bay, but you were saying something about Aaron Rodgers. Kind of sounds like you're indicating that you don't expect him in a Packers uniform next year. Do you think still think that? I would expect the unexpected with Aaron Rodgers. He's such a private 
person, but also very public in how he feels about everything. And I think too many things have been said for him to not go, to not stay with Baseline. I think he's definitely going to check his options and see what happens. Um, the quarterback market moves more than it ever has before in the NFL. I mean, just in this season alone, we've seen so many new faces at so many new teams. And I think there's plenty of opportunities for a team that has good cap space to pick up Aaron Rodgers and see if they can do like pull a Tom Brady and get to the Super Bowl in one year. Might need to get you back here when it comes time to the off season. Maybe we'll get your hot take on that one. But now we move uh, the aforementioned yeah, yeah. the aforementioned Kansas City. Their schedule does not get any easier. They travel to Tennessee, taking on the Titans. Just came off a huge win against the Bills last night on Monday Night Football. Kansas City at three and three offense kind of looked like we expected, but as I said, as I said, schedule doesn't get any easier. What do you think about Chiefs and Titans? So the big thing about the Titans is you have to consider Derrick Henry and you have to consider if you can stop the run game. I'm looking at the Chiefs defensive front and I see possibilities for that to be stopped. Obviously, it's one of those situations where you have Derrick Henry, he's going to get yardage, he's going to get touchdowns. Can you respond with that? And I think with the offensive system the Chiefs have, absolutely you can respond with that. The biggest thing with the Chiefs, and I know this has been said before, is that there needs to be a little bit more not necessarily conservative play calling, but you've got to just slow down and take it easy. Patrick Mahomes wants every time, every time he has the ball, he wants it to be a complete pass, no matter if he's 20 yards backfield or if he's about to get sacked. And because of that, he's just throwing interceptions that are either just balls that are tipped or balls that are just like way high up in the air. Or as we saw last week, just throwing very bad five yard Hail Marys that just fall into people's hands that aren't his own team. So, however, just when the offense of the Chiefs is clicking, it's what we always expect. It's Patrick Mahomes doing amazing things, Tyreek Hill catching the ball, Nicole Hartman, all of those all of those guys, because you double team one of them, then you leave somebody else wide open and it sets up the whole situation. Um, I don't know how the Titans necessarily stop that. And I think it's not, it's. It, this kind of could be similar to the Chiefs-Bills game where the Titans are looking for some retribution after the fact that they lost their AFC championship game to the, to the Chiefs and maybe they want to put some more you know, heart and soul into this one. But I just don't see the same situation. I think with the Titans, uh, Julio Jones went out with a hamstring injury, I believe. So that now you're just down to A.J. Brown. A.J. Brown's great, but the whole selling point of the Titans offense is that if you are able to stop Derrick Henry, you have two monsters of wide receiver that you have to figure out how to uh, take care of. And when one of them is missing, it's not the same. Yeah, I think for, for Kansas City, you know, it's all about defensively, you know, how are they able to stop these high-powered offenses? They haven't been able to do it against Baltimore. They didn't do it against Buffalo. Now you've got Tennessee that's a high-powered offense. Um, and, you know, the, the thing I also is curious is that it almost feels like the league is sort of coming around to figuring out how to stop Kansas City, and it's up to that offense to sort of get creative in their play call. That's why I think Tennessee might be the favorite in this one and why I think I might go with the upset there because this just isn't the same Kansas City team that we've seen in years past. But – I this could be like a 35-30 kind of game. I expect plenty of points to come through in this game. 
A game I don't expect a lot of points, though, is the Falcons and the Dolphins. I mean, when you look at this, Ben, you have a 1-5 in Miami team, but you could argue it could be an 0-6 team if Damian Harris of the Patriots does not fumble that ball. But then here come the Falcons traveling to Miami after their bye. This is definitely going to be an unwatchable game, but we do got to make the pick regardless. What do you say? Um, In regards to this game, I'm looking at quarterback play, and I trust Matt Ryan being able to connect with anybody than I do Tua being able to connect with anybody. Um, I don't know what's up with Tua. I don't know if it's a coaching situation. I don't know if it's just the fact that maybe he's just going to be one of those great college quarterbacks that never really translated properly in the NFL. Or maybe we're just because this is his sophomore year and he's coming off of IR. What I do know is that the Falcons have Kyle Pitts and I don't, and I, I think there's no one really on the secondary of Miami that's going to be able to stop that. Uh, even despite Miami secondary being very good with Xavier Howard, Kyle Pitts has proven himself to be somewhat of an anomaly. And I think that can only get better. I just simply don't trust the Dolphins to win a game unless it's simply handed to them by accident. So I take Falcons um, begrudgingly. I don't expect to watch any highlights of this game because I don't think there will be. (laughs) I mean, the story that you let Jacksonville win their first game after 20 straight losses should like tell you the story right then and there. This is, this was a team. Everyone was high on Miami last year with Tua uh, replacing Fitzpatrick. And then all of a sudden, you know, Brian Flores is this genius outside of the Belichick tree. Well, now they're one in one in five. I think they'll be one in six. I'll take the Falcons as well. But it's odd to think that the Jets and the Dolphins are like in the cellar of the AFC East because I thought it was going to be, you know, that those three teams and then the Jets right at the bottom. But Miami has struggled. I did not expect this coming out from the Dolphins team, but we'll see if they can get some redemption at home. But speaking of the Jets, they're off their bye week. They travel to Foxborough. They take on the Pats, who are two and four. Ben, the Pats are 0-4 at Gillette Stadium. Hard to believe that, but they have not won a game so far this year in Gillette Stadium. Here come the Jets. It almost seems like the Pats have been close in every single game, and it takes a couple of plays for them to turn it around, especially last week in overtime against the Cowboys. What do you say about your Patriots? What what I say about your Patriots, uh, or our Patriots, I guess, is that if there's any team that we're going to beat at home, it's the Jets, because that's, I feel like, New England tradition. Um, it, this is going to be the second game. We beat the Jets fairly handily in week two, I believe, and Zach Wilson threw four interceptions, and that was pretty infamous as a big red flag as to, oh my God, why did they pick Zach Wilson? The Jets have gotten better over the last couple of weeks as they kind of figure out their system more, and Zach Wilson gets better as a rookie quarterback. So I don't expect this game to be a blowout. I do expect the Patriots to win because the Patriots are also in the same situation where they are progressing their offensive defense just at a level where they have Bill Belichick as a head coach and they have Josh McDaniels on offensive coordinator, even though that's a very hot topic right now of is he actually good or was he just Brady's offensive coordinator and uh, just listen to him and he would be like, yeah, sounds good, Tom. I just don't expect the Jets to win many games and I can't imagine this game being one of them. I think it could has the potential of being close, but not in like a very fun competitive way, just in a sense where the Jets have maybe figured some things out looking from at the week two tape 
and are able to fix the mistakes that they did previously. All that being said, go ahead. We say we say explicit words to the Jets, and we move on to bigger and better things. <laughs> that's a that's a good point. I think from a Patriots fan standpoint, you have to look at this game and say that if they drop this game, their season's over. You know, don't even have hopes for the playoffs or anything like that. Despite being two and four, two and four is not a terrible record to have. I know this team did have some expectations with all the additions they made. But with uh, some teams going the way they are, you have Cincinnati at four and two, Cleveland three and three. All these teams are sort of regressing back. You can still kind of catch them. And that's why I think this is huge for New England. Like this is a game they have to win because their schedule is going to get much harder. You know, the Chargers are on the slate. You got to play the Bills. You know, it's going to be a very tough schedule. So I'm with you that I'm going to take the Patriots that they should win this game. But like I said, I don't think it's going to be easy. Plus, Mac Jones is just going to get even more and more confident. You know, he hung with Brady. Then he hung with Dak Prescott. You know, this this success of Jones is not indicative to this team. He's like the only guy right now who's successful on that team right now. I do want to ask you, because we hadn't talked uh, since the draft, what did you think initially of Mac Jones? Did you think he was the right fit? And do you think he can be the long-term future for this Patriots team? I, I was like, okay, because I knew, I knew what Mac Jones was just based off of the national game, the championship game for college football, that he was pretty much a good pocket pass passer and was able to extend plays outside of the pocket, but not in the way that kind of the new quarterbacks like Josh Jones and Lamar Jackson were. And that's a great fit for the Patriots system because the Patriot system has kind of been the tr- more of the quote-unquote traditional quarterback. Um, what, I, what I did not realize about Mac Jones is simply how quickly he was going to be able to pick a lot of aspects up, and there was all the things about Mac Jones is understanding the playbook better than Cam Newton and teaching, teaching Cam Newton plays in big qu- quotation marks, whether you believe that or not, that's up to you. I'm very happy to have Mac Jones out of all the rookie quarterbacks. Um, we were never going to get Trevor Lawrence. We were never going to get uh, Zach Wilson. Maybe we don't need Zach Wilson. Trey Lance would have been an interesting one, but that month, that situation might be a little bit inter- uh, different. And I think it was the best choice to not do Justin Fields, uh, just simply because Justin Fields is such a different uh, athlete that would not necessarily work with the Patriots system. And I think the coaching staff is doing very well in protecting Mac Jones in his rookie year, he has a fantastic completion percentage. And I think that's more due to the part of the play calling that happens as uh, his receiving options are, you know, still, there's no no real number one wide receiver yet. So there's a situation where the plays are are chosen so that Mac can complete them. And he's also just making uh, great plays when he gets like out of the pocket and is able to make things happen as well. I'd say overall, we have a great quarterback um, that can only get better. And I'm excited to see what he's able to do for the next 20 years as we create another dynasty or whatever. <laughs> I'm only asking because you were the biggest Cam Newton fan that I know. And you were saying your Newton jersey's now a collectible. I mean, I'm just seeing how you're dealing with it. But who knows? Cam might be back in the league. He's vaccinated. He might want to be back in the league. There might be a team looking for him. I think I was just very hopeful on the idea of Cam being good, 
because I just, I look back so fondly at the 2015 Panther season and seeing what he was able to do. And it was just such a fun time. And that was also five years ago. <laughs> and <laughs> now Cam is a different person with more injuries and is not able to do uh, as much. He does have a lot. He did, he did get a lot of rushing touchdowns as a quarterback for the Patriots. I think he tied the franchise record. Love that. You know, Patriots legend Cam Newton in business. And I just, it, the Cam situation is always hard because that's a player that you need to create an offensive system around. Where And for him to more than likely be a backup for a team is going to be tough because he's a very, because of the way that he plays. So if you're signing him, you're signing him as a starter. So where he'll be a starter depends on who gets injured over this season and who needs quarterback play over the next uh, couple of years. Maybe we'll have Green Bay Packers legend Cam Newton as Aaron Rodgers flies himself to Denver. That is definitely a hot take, I will say. Yep, he definitely is a New England legend, so much so that number one was given right away right after he left. And now Nikhil Harry is the Pats' number one. <laughs> the, the second Patriots legend, Nikhil Harry, who doesn't understand the concept of being in motion during the offensive <laughs> play. We need to get off the Patriots before I spiral. I know, we could go on and on about this. We'll, we'll get you on for a future segment about the Pats, maybe near the end of the year. Uh, next game, we got to talk about Carolina at the Giants. Giants coming off a beatdown against the Rams, but Carolina has been the bigger story. Started 3-0, and now they've lost three straight, still waiting for Christian McCaffrey to come back from his injury. Ben, I don't know if this Panthers team can succeed with McCaffrey off the field, so they got to get him back onto the field. But until then, how do you see them playing in the Meadowlands? I think if there's any game that you can be gifted as a way to reset yourself, it's against the Giants. Uh, don't consider the Giants that great of a team, and they are also injury-ridden as well. Between Jamal Jones being concussed a couple weeks ago, Saquon Barkley's out. Plenty of receivers are are injured. Uh, last I checked from that Cowboys game, and this one's going to be also a stinker of a game, in my opinion. It might be one of those ones where it's just close because the both of them aren't necessarily great. The Panthers are one of those teams that remind me of so many other teams that have a hot start in September and then, and then fizzle out over time, whether it be because of injuries or because of other circumstances. Sam Darnold is okay. He's not, he wasn't held that much back by the Jets as we're seeing because he still kind of makes the same mistakes that he did when he was on the Jets. Um, I still take the Panthers in this situation more because I believe in the Giants less. That's that's a really good point to put up. And I agree that Sam Darnold, you know, he's not what he was on the Jets. Let's keep that in mind. He's not the Jets quarterback of the past. He's a little bit better. But again, there's still a little tendency on that. I feel like he could get on another hot stretch. And once McCaffrey comes back, then maybe uh, they get back to their winning ways. I think they start with this game against the Giants. And then hopefully when McCaffrey comes back, they'll start to roll again. Because that NFC has become wide open, you know, outside of Tampa Bay, you know, all you got to do is leapfrog the saints and you might get yourself in the wild card. So there's still hope for the Panthers, especially the way I like uh, the way they play defense. So I'll agree with you there and I'll go with Carolina, but what I think is going to be the game of the week, the Bengals at the Ravens, a nice little AFC North matchup Bengals, a surprising four and two going into Baltimore, taking on the Ravens at five and one. 
this was a team in the Bengals I did not expect were going to be four and two through six weeks of the year. How do you see this game shaping up? This is going to be ugly because NFC North games are usually wars and the Bengals are are very good in my opinion. And I think we just forgot how good Joe Burrow could possibly be because he was injured for most of his first season. And when when the pass protection is there, Joe Burrow is able to do some pretty amazing stuff, especially now that he has his LSU teammate, Jamar Chase, not only catching stuff, but also blocking uh, since they didn't draft an offensive lineman in the 2021 draft, you know, pull double duty. The Ravens, though, are, I think, are just currently on another level. Um, the goalposts keep moving for Lamar Jackson in regards to what he, quote unquote, like needs to be or uh, what the expectations of him are. We just need to understand that he's a good quarterback. He's probably the Michael Vick for Gen Z, although, maybe, but that's a whole other, like, can of worms to, to discuss he's not a running back that plays quarterback he is a quarterback that can run and i think the respect needs to be given to him uh this is going to be an interesting matchup i and with the amount of talent that's on both teams i'm going to take coaching and john harborough is one of the most aggressive play callers in the league currently and i will take that over the other uh, uh, Bengals, but I do expect this game to be close. I expect it to be competitive. I expect it to be the best game of the week for sure. I like what you said about uh, John Harbaugh. I think the connection between him and Jackson has been, you know, I said this last week that that might be the best one, two connection between coach and quarterback in the entire NFL. And plus, you know, they can game plan. You look at last week against the chargers where you didn't need the, you didn't need Lamar to throw the ball so much. So he could use his legs more and, you go to the week before against the Colts, he had to throw more instead of his legs. So I think adapting to that is uh, so important for that Baltimore team and for Lamar Jackson. I'm with you there that I think also being home and just this Bengals team kind of being unproven really helps uh, Baltimore with their chances. Let me ask you this. I had uh, Chandler and Pat on last week. They were saying Lamar Jackson is for right now their MVP selection. Are you on that same boat? I mean, he's definitely in the conversation. Uh, in regards to MVP, it's we're, I, I'm looking a lot at Justin Herbert and what he's able to accomplish. He is throwing dimes out there all the time, and and the touchdowns are incredible. Tom Brady, I mean, it's one of the, it, it's almost like a LeBron James situation where Tom Brady just consistently puts up good numbers and could be on a record breaking season. Whether that means MVP or not is a, is a different conversation because of how. MVP is looked at, I, but I would say that um, what, one of the things I always try to look at with MVP is the valuable player aspect. And Lamar Jackson is incredibly valuable to that team in regards to what their offensive system looks like. And because of the fact that they are just on a carousel of running backs that are not necessarily RB1 because their RB1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 are all injured probably. So he's carrying the run game as well, while be still being an excellent passer and being able to do amazing things on fourth and twenties or third and all of those type of situations. Um, I get, I can talk myself into him being the MVP front runner. I just feel like it is still a little too early. Um, if I, if I'm gonna like make picks immediately, uh, Lamar Jackson for MVP. 
Derrick Henry, probably for odds offensive player of the year. Trayvon Diggs, defensive player of the year. That's a good. That's a good way of looking at it. Uh, but you are right. It is fairly. We got to get to like November, or December before we start getting in that conversation. But the next game we got to talk about the Eagles at the Raiders. Eagles two and four. Raiders four and two. Raiders kind of back to where they were now that the John Gruden situation is behind them. But an Eagles team played on last Thursday, so they got plenty of time to prepare. This might be a very close game at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. What do you see with this game? This this is tough. Um, both of these teams, I feel, are equal in some way, even though uh, the scores do not reflect that. I just feel like the Eagles are underperforming with what they have, and and something either something could break out in any given moment, and if there's a team to break out against, it's the Raiders. The Raiders, while they are 4-2, and two, I just don't know what their identity is at this point and now they're in a hard situation where they are figuring out their new identity with new coaching i i would pick the raiders in this situation the raiders are at home although that doesn't necessarily mean much because i'm sure a bunch of philly people will come to las vegas for gambling and for a football game Going to be able to keep the ball on the field for the for the Ravens. Maybe the Eagles can get turnovers out of him, but I just feel like just um, Justin Hurts is going to possibly turn the ball over with the Raider defense. I mean, this Philly offense though is like supremely underrated. I said it last week. I think this is an underrated offensive team, and if that defense can balance out, then this could be a really dangerous Eagles team. I just don't think they're dangerous just yet this year. But I think the Raiders are just too inconsistent where I would totally be comfortable to pick Philadelphia to go for the upset. And that's why I'm going to do it. I think Philly is going to pull it out. I think Jalen Hurts, he's got some of that magic. I don't know what it is or how he does it, but it's just the magic that he has that can get these Eagles into that game. So I think they go to Vegas and they pull the upset. That's how I think Philly is going to do it. It's going to be because of Jalen Hurts. But speaking uh, of a team that needs a win, the Detroit Lions. Oh, and six does not get any easier. They go to Jared Goff's old team in SoFi Stadium to take on the Rams. I don't even need to ask who you got. It's almost like how close can Dan Campbell and the Lions make this against the Rams? Dan Campbell is losing faith in Jared Goff every game, it seems, and is dropping more and more hints as to how he needs to improve. Um, if I were the Lions, I would start watching more college football games and figure out what you're going to do with your first overall pick. This is just going to be hard. Um, Matthew Stafford is going to have like an interesting homecoming. Uh, I, I'm sure uh, people from Detroit will travel to Los Angeles for this one to support the Lions, but also support Matthew Stafford. It'll be like the return, but not really. And yeah, I mean, I don't need to say it out loud, but it's it's just going to be a hurtful situation. I feel incredibly bad for Dan Campbell. It's he's such a he seems like such a great coach, and I feel like he's putting his young players in the best position possible. The schedule is just too hard though, and it doesn't get any easier. And we may look at an 0-17 Lions. I, although there are some games down the stretch that I can't remember right now that could be that could be potential winners for them, but it's still just it is a tough situation, and I don't trust Jared Goff with the football. 
Dan Campbell is a guy who can easily get behind. And you just have to look at the personnel for Detroit and say, they just don't have, you know, you look at even like the bad teams, like, you know, the, they don't have the Trevor Lawrence at quarterback. Jared Goff's just kind of, eh, but he had the number one pick standards, you know, on a team like Chicago with Justin Fields, like he's an electric athlete, you know, they don't have game changing players. I mean, really Deandre Swift and TJ Hawkinson could be the only one right now. But I think the Lions continue to remain the only winless team in the NFL to go to 0-7. Not even going to be close for the Rams. I think Matt Stafford sees that Detroit team coming in there, and they're going to say, this is the talent that you wasted with me. This is what I can do that you wasted, where you only made the playoffs, I think, like twice, but didn't even win a game. Matter of fact, the Lions haven't won a playoff game in, like, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, something like that. It's been a really long time, but – it's not going to be close. But another team, uh, another game, I should say, that I don't think is going to be close, the Texans and the Cardinals. Houston, 1-5. Arizona, the last unbeaten team at 6-0. This doesn't necessarily feel like, you know, a close game. It might be more for Arizona kind of to just make a statement of we can be a dominant team to really be a force in the NFC. What's your expectations for this game? I'm glad we are talking about this game because it reminds me that Kyler Murray might actually be the MVP of the season based off of what he's what he's able to do. The Cardinals are are great. They make some decisions that are kind of mind-boggling with Cliff Kingsbury, uh, but their coaching staff got wiped out with COVID this past week, and they were able to take care of business. and and that that shows a lot just in regards to the personnel that they have either both on like coaching staff but also just with players who who understand what they need to do on the field um the texans are bad as we knew they were going to be bad for a while now even and even if Deshaun watson was on that team actively versus spain it was going to be a tough task for Deshaun Watson to essentially make magic every game it kind of reminded reminds me of Saints games where the defense was atrocious and Drew Brees just had to make things happen for it, for their team no matter what. Um, the Cardinals will remain undefeated. Maybe this will be one of those trap games where the Texans do better than expected, but it's just going to be a very Cardinals-heavy game, and I think it'll just be as one of those things. I think that this is also going to be a Cardinals game. This is going to be one of their last like easier ones as their schedule starts to get a bit harder as well, and they will get tested. You got to remember too, Zach Ertz is going to be making his debut for Arizona. So you have an offense that has the two running backs in Edmonds and Connor. You have DeAndre Hopkins, AJ Green, Rondale Moore, Christian Kirk, and now Zach Ertz as your tight end. That's a dangerous offensive team. Very dangerous. And if you think that Davis Mills can hang around with Kyler Murray, I don't know what you're sipping on because you're talking crazy. This should be an easy win for Arizona. But do you think, Ben, because I kind of argued this last week that the Cardinals might be the best team in the NFC right now. Are you on the same page as that? Or do you think there's still some room for them to get better? It's entirely a possibility. I want to see the Cardinals win some tougher games before I start saying that. But I think right now, if, when you're undefeated, that absolute, that can absolutely mean that you're the best team in the NFC. I think you're competing with the Bucks. I think you're competing with the Cowboys. And I think you're competing with Green Bay. And all of those teams have some faults to them. 
in in some regard. The Cowboys make too many penalties. The Bucks have a secondary that is just demolished and does not have really anybody. And the and Green Bay, you you know, will have their like hiccup moments for sure. But the the Cardinals are currently a buzzsaw and they're a machine. And I would say that they're the best team in the NFC at this pace. They're also the best team because they have Andy Isabella from UMass Amherst. <laughs> that's my hometown. Of course. So, you know, so that's family right there. Yeah, neck, neck of the woods right there, right down the street from uh, Westfield State. Agree. You, you got to get those Western masks. You know, just imagine how good Tampa would be if they added a guy from UMass Amherst or from Westfield State to they'd be over the top right now super bowl favorites wouldn't even be in a conversation but speaking of tampa bay their game in tampa against chicago i think this is going to be a unique test as you said defensively for tampa because their secondary is banged up you have someone like justin fields who is a really good mobile quarterback the question is can those linebackers defensive linemen hang with them but the bears they're three and three they're struggling a little bit does Tampa continue to play at such a high level or do the bears come into Tampa and pull the upset? As long as the Tampa offensive line is up to the challenge of taking on the bears defense line and keeping Tom Brady protected to do Tom Brady things, then this is the bucks game to win. Uh, Tom Brady is still doing Tom Brady things at the age of 44. It's weird. It's unbelievable. It's an anomaly, or maybe it's a sign of, quarterbacks being able to take care of their bodies better and we'll see more of this but we probably won't um yeah this is just if if tom brady's protected and every and all goes according to plan on that on that end he's going to have receivers to throw to and that's just going to be what the situation is i see the bucks being able to take care of business on home i don't see them losing to the bears like they did in that thursday night game uh i believe last yeah last year when tom brady thought it was I third down and not fourth Tom Brady yeah. pro- probably will look back at that film to remind himself of his wrongdoing and use that as motivation for the rest of his life. <laughs> that is, that's the only thing that's, that feels like the only play where you can see, Oh, he is 43. He is getting to the end. Other than that, every part of his game has shown himself to be like 30 or even 25 at that standpoint. But I agree. I think this should be an easy game for Tampa. I think, you know, they might get Rob Gronkowski back, which is going to be huge for that offense. You know, looking at what that offense did, I think defensively is going to be the bigger question because they were, they had the big lead Thursday night against Philly and they kind of let them back into it a little scary, but nothing too crazy for Tampa, but that's just something to watch for down the road is, is that secondary going to be able to uh, maintain or contain all the weapons that these big offenses have? Because if they're letting, you know, an offense like the Eagles sort of hang around, then that might put a little question mark on there saying, hmm, is this the same Tampa team that we saw a year ago? But we'll find out more down the line. We go to the Sunday night game between the Colts and the Niners. Niners coming off a bye, sitting at two and three. The Colts getting their second win by demolishing the Texans. I think, again, this is going to be another close one. But for San Fran, they got to win to maintain in that division. How do you see this game shaping up? This is a, I have, I have my notes. And one of the first things that my notes say for this one is just yikes, because I just don't 
know what either of these teams are. I think we're getting a better idea of what the Colts are. If Jonathan Taylor can continue to do what he did against the Texans, that's going to be great for them because it puts less pressure on Carson Wentz to do quarterback things, which sometimes he's not able to do. Although his completion percentage is better and he hasn't thrown nearly as much interceptions as he did with the Eagles. And the 49ers, um, I'm, I'm, who is, uh, at this point, I believe Trey Lance is starting for them. It was Trey Lance before the bye. I think there's still going to be questions about whether Jimmy G can go or not. I have a feeling that if he's healthy, Garoppolo will be the starter. It's this one. This is tough. The 49ers are just in a situation where they're kind of like they're ebbing and flowing between what their offensive scheme will look like. Um, Like you said, the NFC West is entirely competitive and they can't afford to lose games as the Rams and the Cardinals continue to solidify their spots in the playoffs. Um, I think I can see the Colts getting taking care of business on the road just because Frank Reich has some pretty good coaching ability and is able to make the gutsy calls that need to be done. Kyle Shanahan is also a great great coach for the 49ers, able to make a bunch of stuff happen. I just, I believe in the Colts just a little bit more based off of what I'm seeing. And I just don't know what the Niners are going to look like at this stage. Perhaps when some news breaks on what the 49ers will look like for Sunday, my mind will change. But for now, I'm gonna stick with the Colts. All I know is, is this is going to be a great game to watch because basically every primetime game has been phenomenal to watch so far this year. I mean, look at last uh, Sunday night between Seahawks and Steelers, and then the primetime for the four o'clocks was the Cowboys Pats. You know, every single primetime game has been incredible. So even though these teams are below 500, they're not the elite of the elite. Watch this game because it's going to be entertaining, it's going to be close. I do think the 49ers pull out this one. I think, you know, like you said about the quarterback situation with San Fran, I'm that way with Indy just because Carson Wentz, he just, he's not a believer just yet, at least in me. I'm not a believer in him that he can be the big difference. I know he got T.Y. Hilton back for last Sunday, so maybe that's more of a factor right now. But I just think the Niners, as you said, they're, um, they have a quarterback situation that they'll probably figure out. Even if Garoppolo is starting, you'll see Trey Lance as we've seen in week past, they'll get in there for some wildcat or stuff like that. Kyle Shanahan will be able to draw plays like that. So that's why I think my pick would be the 49ers for that Sunday night game. But then to wrap it up, that Monday night game, the Saints at the Seahawks, New Orleans at three and two coming off a of bye. The Seahawks off of a tough overtime loss to Pittsburgh with Geno Smith. As their quarterback, they're still going to roll with Geno Smith, obviously, as Russell Wilson is still on the IR. Ben, is this a Seattle team that really can win with Geno Smith at the quarterback position? Um, no. <laughs> to to put it honestly, um, this the Seahawks are defined by Russell Wilson, and Russell Wilson is obviously not with the team right now on IR, and it's hard to create an identity when you don't have your star quarterback in in this case. Um, There's a lot of Seahawks parts that are not what they used to be, uh, whether it be offensively or defensively. I think in regards to this game, I'm just looking at the Saints. The Saints have fully signed up for the James Winston experience where one drive ends in an interception and then the other drive ends in a 75-yard touchdown. And I think the Saints can get it done, 
it just depends on how much of a Jameis Winston experience are we going to have. And if Taysom Hill is going to be able to, you know, pick up where Jameis left off in order to make something happen. Um, while this is a Seahawks home game, I just don't see any Seahawks win, uh, Seahawks game being a guaranteed win until Russell Wilson comes back. Geno Smith has proven himself to be a good, like, offensive manager and just being able to get the ball down the field when, when it needs to happen. Um, can Will there be enough, like, support from the 12th man to create the environment that needs to be created is yet to be seen. I am comfortable saying that the Saints can take care of business on the road for this one. I think uh, Sean Payton is going to have a good coaching scheme against the Seahawks and be able to uh, get, at least defensively, get uh, Geno Smith aggravated or just like get the pressure or get the hits, whatever that they need in order to like get him off balance. And from there, it'll just be James will do his thing and we'll get results and good things or bad things. I think, you know, when the Saints re-signed Winston, you kind of expected sort of this off again, on again, unless we were totally believers that uh, Sean Payton could turn him around and not be a 30-30 guy with 30 interceptions despite getting 5,000 yards. So you kind of signed up for this. I think coming off the bye is going to be very important. They had a lot of time to prepare for this. They get an extra game. Meanwhile, Seattle, uh, they do get an extra day to prepare for this one. They are at home. But I think in the NFC West, that's the worst team. In the competitive division that it is, they are the worst team in that division. And as you were saying with Geno Smith, I think we're going to learn after this game and maybe the one after that is, is he going to be one of those career backup guys, you know, similar to like maybe a Brian Hoyer who can, you know, he's not going to waste you a game. He's going to manage the time while your uh, starter is already out. You know, is he going to be that relegated backup, you know? Similar to what the Patriots do for Brian Hoyer. He just stays on for his veteran presence. Geno Smith could be that guy for Russell Wilson. But I'll agree with you. I'll go with the Saints on this one. And that's our slate of games, Ben. We wish you best of luck in these games. Do you have anything you want to promote or anything out there before we sign off? Um, as of today, Ben Simmons got kicked out of practice uh, at 76ers. <laughs> The process is going strong. <laughs> There's one Ben we can count on, and that is Ben May. That's Ben May joining That's us right. for our NFL Pick'em Slate here for Week 7. Ben, thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having me, Joe. Moving on, we stay with football and talk a little college here. We are entering week eight of the college football season, which means the playoff chatter is going to start sprouting up here and there. And the question is, who are the teams that should make that college playoff? There's still plenty of time and a lot of things could change, but the playoff talk is going to start. And I think for right now, there are a couple teams that should make it. There are a couple teams that shouldn't make it. And I thought... Why not make it the subject of our segment known as Hot Takes? So right now, when you look at the AP poll, number one, once again, the Georgia Bulldogs. Now, they are number one. 
They're on their bye week right now, but I think they should be number one if they go undefeated the rest of the way. If they can at least get to the SEC championship, they should win this game. And I think it's a pretty favorable schedule when you look at what Georgia has to do. I mean, they've all been convincing wins, but you've got Florida after your bye week, got Missouri at home, you travel to Tennessee, and that's it. the other two are just walkover games, if you ask me. Florida, Missouri, Tennessee, that's the remaining schedule for them. And really, I think the biggest test is Florida. I know they have a lot of quarterback controversies, but you have to watch the cocktail party because I think that's the best chance that Georgia has at dropping the game because offensively, they just look phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So I think Georgia has to be in there. They have to be in there if they continue to go this way because you got to remember, there have been a ton of upsets going on right now. You had Alabama lose when they were number one. You had Iowa last week who lost when they were number two. You had Ohio State lose. You had Florida lose. You know, there's still a ton of upsets that can still happen. You know, games that you don't think could happen. But I want to talk about Cincinnati up next. They're ranked in number two in the AP Top 25. I think what hinders them is their schedule. Okay, That's really the only thing that I see. But if they remain undefeated, they should get in. I know they're in, you know, they're not in the Big Ten. They're not in the SEC. They're not in the... Big 12 or the Pac-12, anything like that. It's not the strongest conference, but they are third in the nation in defensive points per game. Their offense is putting up points on the board. If they remain undefeated, they should get in. No questions about it. They should. Because with the schedule that they're in right now, they're in the American Conference. They're 6-0, and but they've beaten Notre Dame. They've beaten Temple. They've beaten Indiana. Okay, they've got Navy this week. They go they go to Tulane. They face UCF. They got USF, excuse me. And then they host SMU later on. If they go and go undefeated, then it should be a no-brainer. It should be a no-brainer that this team gets in. They should get in if they remain undefeated. The team looks great, and I love when the playoff rewards these smaller teams. I hate seeing big schools like Alabama and Ohio State get in every single year, which is kind of unfair. But speaking of Alabama, you know, I think they slide in there because of Oklahoma. I think Oklahoma has a ton of questions at the quarterback position. I mean, you have Lincoln Riley benching the preseason Heisman favorite, one of the Heisman favorites, and Spencer Rattler for our freshman Caleb Williams, I feel like that's going to come and bite them in the butt eventually because, yes, they were able to, when the move was made, they escaped Texas in that absolute shootout. And then they won with Williams at home against TCU. But their schedule gets harder. They have to go to Baylor. They have to go to Oklahoma State. Is Caleb Williams, the freshman, ready for that? I know Lincoln Riley really has a tough decision to make in terms of these quarterback questions, but... Right now, they're undefeated at 7-0. They're ranked number three, but when does it catch up to them? You know, like I said at the beginning of the college football season or near the beginning of it, is that this team in Oklahoma always seems to stumble in some way. You know, they can never get to the promised land. Even when they get to the playoff, it's totally, they just put up a dud, essentially, because 
They don't have a defense. No one in the Big 12 has a defense. I mean, look at it. They're giving up 31 points to TCU in a loss. They put up 76 points against WCU. I I don't see Oklahoma really going far. I feel like they're going to drop a game, and I feel like they're going to get themselves out because this quarterback situation, you got to decide on one. You can't just go one or the other. Everyone's talking about Spencer Rattler not being in there. Is he the game manager? Lincoln Riley has to decide that. They have to decide that. But as I said, that loss would lead to Oklahoma, uh, Alabama getting into there because Alabama really won bad loss and they're, I mean, they're still in it. Let, let's keep that in mind. They're ranked fourth right now in the AP Top 25 at 6-1. and one, Okay, you have to look at a team. Michigan is 6-0 and and they're ranked sixth. Oklahoma 6-0 and and they're ranked eighth. Michigan State 7-0 and and ninth. Okay, so... I get it's the SEC, I get it's Nick Saban, but Alabama doesn't have to be in every single year, okay? If you see a team, like, whoever wins the Big Ten, I think, should get in, okay? If it's Michigan, and they go undefeated, if they finally get over the hump, if Harbaugh gets over the hump of Ohio State, they should be in. If Michigan State wins the Big Ten, they should be in. But the fact that they're going with the SEC as the stronger conference over the Big Ten because of rankings, strength of schedule, I think that's a little ridiculous. It's a little ridiculous to me to see the same teams in every single year. So I'd love a playoff without Alabama. I'd love a playoff without Ohio State. I would be a big fan of that. I love seeing new teams. That's why I'm pulling for Cincinnati. I'm pulling for Georgia. I'm even a little bit rooting for Oklahoma a little bit. I don't think they get in, though, but I am rooting for them. So, as of right now, if you ask me, you know, the way the AP Top 25 is right now between with uh, Georgia number one, Cincinnati number two, Oklahoma number three, Alabama number four, if those four teams got into the playoff, I wouldn't quite be happy. I would not be happy because I think the Big Ten champion has to get in there. I feel like they do. I feel like they do because SEC with two teams again, Alabama at six and one, I don't see it. I don't want that to happen, you know, so I think for right now, you know, it's okay. The only blip is number four, Alabama. Obviously, they haven't come out with the playoff rankings yet or what the playoff would look like. They'll do that in the next couple of weeks, but the closer we get to the end of the college football season, the more we'll learn about which teams truly deserve to make the college football playoff. to our segment known as let's get local we dive into all our boston teams and i gotta tell you it is a very active market here in boston for sports you got the bruins tipping off the celtics getting started but of course the talk of the town are the red sox being here at fenway park going one and two one and two at fenway park in the alcs going back to houston down three two in the american league championship series now i talked about it In our baseball segment about the LCS, this offense has gone cold. And I don't mean cold. They've gone like stone cold. Like so cold that you 
put you fill up the ice tray for a freezer, leave them there, and you forget that they're in there. That's how cold they've gotten, the way this offense has been. I mean, three grand slams in the first uh, three games of the series. You know, Kike Hernandez hitting the ball a ton, and now they put up three runs over the last two games while the Astros have scored 18. I feel like, you know, we're starting to see that true Red Sox team. You know, I talked about it again previously, but I'll just dive into it a little deeper. This bullpen isn't the elite bullpen that everyone thinks it is. You know, it's not the Houston bullpen. It's not the Dodgers. It's not the Braves. That should be that should be priority number one. Priority number one is fixing this bullpen. Because starting pitching, you know, last night, Chris Sale looked like Chris Sale. Okay, that's the dominant guy everyone's known for. And he just went into a little bit of a funk. All the pitchers go through it. Chris Sale is Chris Sale. Nathan Evaldi has been outstanding he's been the outstanding ace for the Sox team even Eduardo Rodriguez he's been able to go a couple of innings you know the fact that he was able to go the distance and even Nick Pavetta you know you take away that home run to Jose Altuve in that first inning or I don't I don't think it was Altuve it was that that one home run in the fourth inning you take all that and he was great so it's the bullpen that is the problem okay this Houston Astros team is starting to figure out about Brazier about Robles, about Whitlock. I mean, Garrett Whitlock got lit up over his two innings, okay? Well, not lit up, but he they did tie the game after that when he was in there. So they're figuring him out. And Whitlock's their best pitcher. If they're going after Whitlock and tagging him for a few runs, that that's a problem right there. So that's, that's number one. That's bullpen right there. Number two, offense has to get better, okay? Even when they had these big kind of leads, as I said, 22 of their runs scored in this series have been in the first first three innings. So they have to hit this bullpen for the Astros. They have to take advantage of the runners in scoring position. I can't tell you how many guys they've left on base since they got to Fenway Park. Okay, they've had second and third. They've had first and second with no outs or one outs or whatever. They have golden opportunities and they waste them. These hitters can't hit it in the clutch moment. I mean, you have a guy, you know, like in game three, when Christian Arroyo hits a home run, you know your offense is doing good. You know they're doing good. But the fact is, this offense, since game four, and now into game five, has stunk. Absolutely stunk. And they need to fix it. You know, it could be Devers' forearm catching up to him, but he hit a home run last night. It could be Bogarts, but he hit a two-run home run in Game 4. You know, it could be Martinez. It could be Hernandez. It could be Schwarber. All these offensive guys that you're looking for a boost are not there. They're not there. So, honestly, the faith is going down a little bit. I'm still holding it out there because the way these fans are, you know, like I said, I was there in Game 4. That atmosphere was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Everyone was in it from first pitch to last pitch. I mean, granted, a lot of people left in between the ninth inning after they put a nine spot on the board and got seven in that inning. But aside from that, the atmosphere was electric. These fans are passionate. They care about this team. And, you know, you can't lose faith just yet. You can't lose the faith. Absolutely. You can't. That's that's the embodiment of this team, even going back to 2004. You got to keep the faith. You know, so my Red Sox fan is really, really hoping that they pull through and get these next two games in Houston, get themselves to the World Series. But 
realistically, it's going to be an uphill battle. It's really going to be tough. And who knows? They could do it. They could get on another hot streak and hit another five grand slams or something like that. But obviously, the Bruins are the talk of the town. Of course, the dumpster talk of the town has been the Patriots, the fact that they're now 0-4 at Gillette Stadium. I mean, how many times can you say that the Patriots are winless at Gillette Stadium? That was a place that was sacred for so many times, for so many years. And then they lose in overtime to the Dallas Cowboys at Gillette. I mean, don't get me wrong. Mac Jones is getting better and better as the weeks go along. I mean, the fact that he has gone back and forth with now Tom Brady and now with Dak Prescott. I mean, 15 of 21, 229, two touchdowns and a pick. But keep in mind on that pick, it was to right now the best ball hawking cornerback this game has right now in Diggs. And even right afterwards, he went back to Diggs to Kendrick Bourne, and Bourne scored a 75-yard touchdown, okay? So that's confidence right there. The fact that a rookie is able to do do that and go after a guy you just picked that just picked you off, props to Mac Jones on that one. But I just think it was just too much talent. Too much talent for this Cowboys team. Patriots could not stop it for a full 60 minutes and even an extra minute in overtime. Stuff like that. I mean, that pass to CeeDee Lamb for the win was unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And I I didn't even expect a win, you know. Did I expect a 40 spot on the Cowboys? They were close, but I didn't think the Patriots would be able to put up a 30 spot and keep it close with this Cowboys team. But this all goes back to just coaching and personnel because they have the guys. You know, I believe in these guys defensively with Matthew if you have Matthew Judon, Kyle Van Noy, Dante Hightower, Lawrence Guy as your your front seven, like you should you should be able to win games defensively. Okay? You should still win games defensively. But I mean just again the weapons that the Cowboys had. JC Jackson couldn't hold down Amari Cooper and CD Lamb for so long. Jalen Mills felt a little outmatched from time to time. I just think you know, this just isn't the same Bill Belichick that we've seen with Tom Brady. He's he's not the same coach. And who knows if he only gets a few a few more years. I think the relationship between him and Kraft are too good where he wouldn't fire Belichick as the GM or the head coach. They would just Belichick would have to walk away on his own. But there is still a chance to salvage this season because it's still early. They are two and four. But it's only been six games, okay? Six games of a 17-game schedule. You haven't even hit the halfway point. And you get the Jets coming into town, okay? If you don't beat the Jets at home in Gillette Stadium, you're done. Your season's over. I said this in week two when they went to the Meadowlands, that if they lost that game, their season was over. This is the time for the Patriots to turn the corner. If they're going to turn the corner, it's going to be in this game. They have to show that they're not just going to lay over and die. They can't do that because their schedule is not going to get any easier after this Jets game. The week after that, they have to go after the Jets. These are a couple of the games. At Chargers, at Panthers, versus Browns, at Falcons, versus Titans, at Bills. That's in the next couple of weeks. Those are all, you know, maybe outside the Atlanta game. Those are games you're not expected to win. So it's time to get some energy in this team. It's time to get some energy Get a boost and get this team back into the win column. 
Okay, the fact that they're squeaking out wins against Houston is a problem. That's a problem right there. When you have a team like the Indianapolis Colts who are one and four blowing them out, this is a problem. Okay, and I turn to Bill Belichick on this one. I don't put it on Mac Jones. I don't put it on anyone on the offense, anyone on the defense. I put this on Bill Belichick. This is why this team is struggling. But who knows? Could be a totally different narrative if the Patriots beat the Jets at Gillette Stadium. But I talked about it before the segment even began. The Celtics kicking off their season last night. What a game. What a game. Your season opener is a double overtime game at Madison Square Garden. I mean, let's just talk about regulation. Jalen Brown putting up 20 points in the first quarter. He's definitely fine from that wrist injury. He's recovered from COVID. He looks great. I think offensively, this team looks great. It's defensively where they're going to have to clean it up. Now, I know this Knicks team is revamped. They've got new energy. They've got Evan Fournier. They've got Kemba Walker. They've got Derrick Rose off the bench. And they still have their all-star Julius Randle. But, I mean, come on. Look at that rally. Within, like, 30 seconds, they put up 10 points. Marcus Smart with maybe the best butter buzzer beater of the season so far. And it hasn't even started. It could be the best by the time this one's over. I mean, first it was an inbound to Tatum. Tatum slips. He gets it to Schroeder. And uh, wisely for New York, they go to Schroeder, who's a better shooter. But he gives it off to Smart. And Smart hits the three at the buzzer to get it to overtime. I mean, wow. Just absolutely wow. Now, I'm not going to make any judgments on this team because I know they did lose in double overtime. But I'm not going to say, you know, that's a game you should have won or whatever, something like that. I just think if that's your first game and you're performing like that, this might be a really good year for the Celtics team. I still hold out my expectations that the fourth or the fifth seed might be the highest that this team can go. I think, you know, keep in mind also they didn't have Al Horford who's recovering from COVID, so we don't know how he's going to play in, if he's going to show his old age or if he's going to be the big Al that he was a few years ago for the Celtics team. We don't know that for sure. But the season's just kicking off, and you're already in a double overtime game. I mean, what a performance. What a performance. I give the Knicks credit as well. They definitely won that game, grind it out. But just watching after the buzzer beater like Spike Lee and Tracy Morgan and all of them were just stunned of like, wow, smart hit that buzzer beater. I mean, talk about a way to kick off the NBA season. And that's just one of 82. So it should be a very exciting year on the hardwood for the Boston Celtics. Now, finally, to end our show, as we always do, it's our LOL moment of the week. And I got to be honest, we almost had a back-to-back repeat for Charles Barkley. Because if you watched on NBA on TNT, Inside the NBA, another edition of who we play for. And as usual, Chuck can't get any of them right, even with Drew Carey on the stage. But our nominee and our moment is NBA-based. So let me introduce this week's LOL moment of the week. And it is going to LaMelo Ball, the star 
for the Charlotte Hornets. Now, this is nothing that he said or did. Just look at this picture after last night's game for the Charlotte Hornets. Look at that outfit. That is full drip neon yellow from top to bottom. And I mean, the funniest thing was watching on social media. I think Barstool Sports said like, LaMelo looks like a guy where three guys are stacked on top of each other. But I mean, I will never understand like high class fashion if you ask me. If it, if it was me, I'd just show up there with like a t-shirt and jeans or whatever. I'm not going for any kind of style point. So I got to talk to hopefully in the future like Russell Westbrook or some of these guys about like their fashion and stuff like that and why they think this is a good look because I don't think it's a good look at all. I mean, LaMelo, keep in mind, he's like 6'7", so that's probably why Barstool said like the three guys stacked on top, but that's like a full-fledged trench coat in neon yellow and neon yellow pants with like a, I think it was like a turtleneck or something like that. That he was wearing underneath. Like, I'll never understand how that's good fashion. Like, I need to get someone on who's like a fashion expert or something like that. Maybe I'll just, you know, if you're listening, you know, drop in the comments on our social media pages or something like that. Would you wear this outfit after an NBA game or something like that? But, you know, the Ball family are known for making a lot of headlines and stuff like that. You know, Lonzo, if you look at Lonzo, he's got his fro back from when he was at UCLA. When he first got into the NBA, you got... Uh, Lamelo with that, even as the middle brother Leangelo got signed to the the G League, I believe uh, with the Charlotte Hornets. So he's on the Charlotte Hornets G team. But you know, Lavar is probably gonna come at me saying like this: this is the greatest outfit of all time, better than what Michael wore, better than what Kobe wore, better what LeBron wore. Like I don't need to hear more about this ball family. I don't. I just want to see it on the floor. I don't want to see these kind of headlines. You know, of LeVar talking up his kids again. I don't need it. I just need to see the Ball family on the floor. And so far, two of the three brothers look pretty good. Pretty good for an NBA career. I'm expecting big things from Lonzo in Chicago, getting that Bulls team to the playoffs. I'm expecting, you know, maybe a much better season from Charlotte now that they have a full Gordon Hayward and LaMelo's experience, stuff like that. You know, they got Rogier and stuff like that. I want to see the Ball family on the floor. But LaMelo, for this, I'd call creative outfit, I guess, that you wore in your press conference after Charlotte's game last night, it has earned you into this week's spot as the LOL Moment of the Week. So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, whether you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or watching us on YouTube. Make sure you follow our social media pages on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you've got a point you got to get across, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.